The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Taking different paths, China slows down as the United States heads toward a soft landing after all. And Morgan Stanley fires on all cylinders while Goldman reboots. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, contributors Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors on what generative AI could mean for the economy and for investors. I have a suspicion that AI is coming for the cognitive class history is probably still on the side that we will find our way through this in a positive way. Owen Thomas of Boston Properties on just how bad it could get in commercial real estate. The sentiment is worse than the reality that we're experiencing. And Dennis Arfa of Artist Group International about what Taylor Swift's billion dollar tour means for the business of music. She's raised the bar, she's at a new bar. Global Wall Street spent the week looking two different directions as China economic numbers once again pointed to a disappointing year. The private sector is a big part of the Chinese economy. They're just not spending or investing like they used to. And Kristalina Georgieva of the IMF warned about what that could mean for the rest of the world. China slowing down, of course, affects Asia, affects the world. But at the same time that the numbers seem to be getting worse in China, they continue to point towards strength in the United States, leading Treasury Secretary Yellen to say a U.S. recession may be off the table. I don't expect a recession. I think that we're on a good path to bringing inflation down. That stronger than we thought U.S. economy helped most of the big banks do better than we expected on their earnings. Led by Morgan Stanley with CEO James Gorman chalking the success up to three basic things. The combination of really high conservative capital levels, obvious organic growth within a couple of core businesses, and very high dividend yield. But things weren't quite as rosy over at Goldman Sachs, with reduced profits in part because of challenges in the commercial real estate business. They have about $28 billion in loans in the commercial real estate space. So that's about 15% of their total loan portfolio. And CEO David Solomon admitted that the bank is going through something of a rebuilding period. You're making tough decisions. 
that are driving the strategic evolution of the firm. Given both these factors, it should come as no surprise that we're going through a period of lower results. Through it all, the S&P 500 continued its surprising march upward, adding another seven-tenths of a percent to end the week at 45.36, way above where the Bloomberg elves had been. Although, in fairness, the elves have been taking their median estimate up, now indicating a 4,300 S&P by the end of the year. The Nasdaq didn't do quite as well, giving up just under six-tenths of a percent, while the yield on the 10-year was just about flat, hanging out at 3.83, though it did dip as low as 3.73 on Wednesday and then flirted with 3.87 late on Thursday. To take us through the week in the markets and what investors should make of them, we welcome back Sarah Malik. She's Nuveen Chief Investment Officer and Christina Hooper, Invesco Chief Global Market Strategist. So welcome back to both of you. Thanks for being back with us. Let me start with you, Ashley, Christina. What did you make of the week in the markets? So I was happy to see a continued broadening in markets. So we didn't see tech do well, but that's okay because there was more participation from a variety of sectors. Uh, so I think in general, this is a fairly healthy environment, but we should expect that it's not surprising if we get some kind of pullback. We've had a strong rally this year. There should be, uh, or there should likely be a digestion period over the coming months. So a broadening of the markets, do you see that as well, Sarah? We actually, had Bloomberg have a chart indicating the relationship between small caps and the S&P 500, suggesting there's a bigger divergence than there have been in 20 years. Are you seeing a broadening of the markets or not? Well, there's three reasons why the bulls beat the bears again this week. One is broader participation in the indexes. Second is inflation, which is continuing to moderate. And third, of course, is earnings season. So participation rate for everything outside of those top 10 technology stocks has been very strong since June 1st. That's a healthy sign for the markets. Moderating inflation with CPI and PPI coming in under, under expectations is another positive. But we are still concerned about wage inflation and core inflation, which remains above the Fed's target. So, sir, we're still early on the earnings season so far, so we'll have to find out what actually happens. But where are you on the S&P 500 by the end of the year? We still think there's upside. As long as employment markets remain strong and the consumers keep spending, and you tend to see that when people are comfortable with their jobs, they will keep spending money. I think the market still has upside if that's the case. Now, I do acknowledge 16 months of monetary tightening, including what we think is one more rate hike next week until, and then we're done with rate hikes uh, for a while. But all of that putting together, as long as we don't see a recession this year, which we doubt that we will, I think the market keeps climbing higher. Technology, I wouldn't count that out either. It has a lot of tailwinds like lower inflation, yields that are moderating, and artificial intelligence. I think tech stocks also will continue to move higher once they consolidate. David, I don't disagree with Sarah. Uh, I think after that digestion period that I talked about and the potential for a modest pullback, what we're likely to see is some improvement in the S&P 500 by year end. And I would argue that that is being fueled by what I will call a bumpy landing. I don't think it's a soft landing, but I don't think we go into any kind of significant broad-based recession. Um, we're also going to see history help us. What we know is that when the Fed stops hiking rates, typically in the one year period, the two years uh, after the end of rate hikes, that is when we tend to see good performance, uh, strong returns usually from the S&P 500. I don't think this is going to be different this year, especially since this time around, this kind of downturn is a job full downturn. And so we see the consumer continuing to spend, as Sarah mentioned, um, because they have jobs and they can spend. And with inflation coming down, um, that also helps, helps with discretionary spending. 
If it is summer, it is time to catch some live music. And this summer, the biggest live music that there is out there comes from Taylor Swift, whose Eras Tour is expected to bring in a billion dollars. Welcome now, Dennis Arfa. He's head of global music at IAG. He has represented artists such as Billy Joel, Metallica, Rod Stewart, and many others. Thanks so much, Dennis, for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, so we have a sense, as, as fans, as people who follow Taylor Swift, that she's really big. But for the music business, how big? Is she? Well, what she has accomplished with her tour is unprecedented. Never before have we ever seen an artist put multiple stadium shows on sale in the same city and blow them all out on the on sale. And that's never happened. And so she's raised the bar, she's at a new bar because now. That, that somebody can play whatever, I believe it's 51 stadium shows and sell it out on the on sale is incredible. It's, it's what I'd call Beatlesque. Yeah. It's what we would have expected the Beatles to do had they been touring in prime time as today. They would, they would kind of, we would expect to have that same kind of result. So we talked to investors here. Give us a sense of the economics of this. Uh, you referred to the Beatles. Uh, my understanding from reading about it is the economics were different back then, that a lot of the economics were driven by the records, the old LPs that we bought. Not so much anymore. When we talk about perhaps a billion dollars in this tour, where does that money come from? How does it break down? Well, it breaks down from ticket sales, um, and then the additional monies that come from ticket sales, platinum tickets, VIP tickets, merchandising is a, is a, is a big ingredient, uh, sponsorship, um, you know, so those are kind of um, the things that bring up the, the dollar amounts. But it's ticket sales is the base. Where does recorded music fit in anymore? Well, you know, today you can have a record that's number one and, or, and, and be 100,000 or 50,000 units. 25 years ago, you know, uh, many artists were selling a million, a million albums, a million records, uh, you know, on release or, you know, it was, it was more common. So the album sales are diluted and the record sales are diluted in comparison to what it used to be. I mean, there's artists, whether it's the Eagles or Billy Joel at 24 million, 27 million, Michael Jackson, the Thriller. Those numbers really don't exist. And if they do, they're really aberrations. The Adele success, the Taylor Swift success, those are aberrations. That really wasn't the case 25 years ago. I have a lot of gold records and platinum records on my wall, and some of those artists, you don't even know who they are. And today, you know, if you did 25,000 in the week, you could end up being in the top 10. Okay, Dennis, thank you so much for being on Wall Street Week. That is Dennis Arfa. He's the founder of AGI. Coming up, everywhere we turn, we hear about problems with commercial real estate. We'll talk with the head of the largest publicly traded developer of high-end office space in the country, Owen Thomas of BXP. Remote work is like a benefit. It's like compensation. You have to meet the market. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week brought another round of bad news in commercial real estate. From Goldman Sachs seeing a $485 million hit from the property market to news of yet another big mortgage default. This one for $212 million on an Atlanta office tower owned by Starwood Capital. To put it all in a broader perspective, the good and maybe even the not so good, welcome back now Owen Thomas. He's chairman and CEO of BXP. That is the largest publicly traded developer of high-end office space in the country. Owen, always great to have you with us. As I say, and you know, there's so much bad news in commercial real estate. Put in a larger perspective exactly where we are at this point. What are you seeing in your business, particularly in terms of occupancy rates? Are yeah. people really coming to the office yet? Yeah. Well, David, nice to be with you. Um, I would say, in summary, that the sentiment is worse than the reality that we're experiencing. So let's talk a little bit about uh, usage of buildings. There's a steady stream of corporate announcements going on right now of companies returning to the office like Amazon did on May 1st, companies that were in the office three days a week moving to four days, even some companies saying we're going to evaluate all the all you employees based on your office attendance at year end. So you're seeing more and more of this. I think CEOs all want more in-person work. They, rep they recognize that uh, remote work is like a benefit. It's like compensation. You have to meet the market, but it comes with a real cost of productivity and, and culture. Are you seeing in your buildings, though, and actually people showing up? Because we have things like Castle Card reporting. It's still like 50% in Manhattan. Are you seeing it yeah. move up? So the building, we don't use Castle systems, and a lot of the landlords that we compete with don't. So I know the industry uses their data, but uh, so I'll tell you what we're experiencing. Yeah. So in New York and Boston, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is more or less at pre-pandemic attendance. I think Monday's about 60% of that peak, and Friday's probably less than 30% of that peak. 
The West Coast markets where we operate, Seattle, San Francisco, and LA, they're probably 50% of all those numbers, so well behind. What about repurposing some of these office buildings? Because we've heard a lot about that, uh, and whether for residential or, I think you've been big in life sciences, actually, haven't you, at yes. VXP? Yes. How is that going? Is there, is there too much of a move into life sciences? Are yeah. you seeing a glut? Yeah. Well, let me uh, talk about the repurposing. We definitely have repurposed several office buildings successfully into life science. And we've done it very carefully in some of the premier life science markets in the country. But on the residential conversions, which you asked about, this is something that theoretically makes a tremendous amount of sense. We need more housing in our cities. We need less obsolescent office buildings. We need more real estate tax revenues. We need more activity on the street. And when you repurpose an asset, the carbon footprint of doing that is much lower than demolishing and reconstructing. However, there, there are obstacles to doing all these things. Regulatory, zoning requirements, um, residential zoning versus commercial zoning, physical requirements, the building has to be empty the uh, depth of the buildings. Residential needs more light and air than office, and many uh, office buildings have deep floor plates. And then financial, you know, to do a successful conversion, the office building has to be contributed at something pretty close to land value. So there, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. There are a lot of obstacles, but I would think about it this way, uh, David. There are 400 million square feet of office space in New York. If one to two percent was converted, that's four to eight million square feet of new housing, and it's also probably you know five to ten percent of the vacant office building. So, not a lot as a percent has to happen for it to be meaningful. You raised the geography question because you particularly are obviously in Boston, but also New York, San Francisco. Some of the cities have been hit a little harder when it comes to residential. I'm sorry, office. Yes. Uh, are you thinking about going to other places? We hear yeah. a lot about Austin. We hear about Miami. We hear right. about Florida. Are you thinking about expanding into yeah. other geographic areas? Yeah. Well, we're very happy with our footprint. We believe in having real estate where there are barriers to new supply and also knowledge clusters of workers, and we think our cities have those. There's clearly been some migration to the Sun Belt, and there's been strong growth in the Sun Belt markets, but there's also been a lot of development. If you look at the vacancy rates in many of the Sun Belt cities, they've gone up very significantly over the last year to 18 months, and in many cases are above the vacancy rates in the cities where we operate. Oh, and you're in a particular position, which is a publicly traded company, the, the largest publicly traded company when it comes to high-end office buildings, which means you have a lot of resources, access yes. to a lot of resources. On the other hand, you have to, there's a mark to market every single day in right. a sense that's affected your stock like everybody else's. Uh, as you look at it right now, do you see opportunities? I mean, are there bargains out there? Because in fact, there are problems getting financing, the prices are coming down. Yeah, I think there are. Uh, we've, so for example, we launched at the end of last year, a billion and a half dollars of life science development in East Cambridge. We're building a 600 plus thousand square foot lab building for AstraZeneca at attractive yields to our shareholders. We're also converting another significant office building in East Cambridge to life science for the Broad Institute, also at attractive yields. Uh, so those are th the types of things that we've been investing in. But I think as um, this market evolves and there's more pricing discovery and a reset, I do think it will create great opportunities for a well-capitalized player like BXP. Thank you so much. Always a treat to have you with us. That's Owen Thomas of BXP. To everything, there is a season, but sometimes that season can last pretty long. It's the summer of everything old being new again. 
We're a year away from the true start to the next presidential race, and a lot of the focus is already on the age of the two frontrunners. As former President Trump, a spry 77-year-old, looks to reclaim the White House from the more senior President Biden clocking in at a mature 80. But then again, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell beats them both at 81. And some of those after Mr. Biden's job aren't too shy about showing off how useful and vigorous they are. From Robert Kennedy Jr. doing bare-chested push-ups for the camera at age 69. That's a good boy. To the baby in the group, 45-year-old Miami Mayor Francis Suarez demonstrating he can run all over town in a tight t-shirt and shorts. I'm going to run for president. It's not just Washington where the mature are showing their staying power. Bob Iger retired as CEO of Disney at age 70 after 15 years running the company, only to come back for return performance with a contract that now will keep him in charge until he's at least 75. This isn't really a huge surprise, right, that his contract has been renewed. Um, at this point, it's incredibly enticing, I think, and very tempting to keep him on board. But Bob is just the right age to deal with some of the leading men driving the box office this summer. From Tom Cruise at 60, starring in yet another Mission Impossible. I don't accept that. To Arnold Schwarzenegger at 75, saving the world in FUBAR. I'm retired. To Harrison Ford, returning as Indiana Jones at age 80. But I've been looking for this all my life. But wait, there's more. The star of what may well be the hit movie of the summer tops them all at the age of 83. Yes, 83 years old, and she is a leading lady. I'm talking, of course, about the one and only Barbie. You might say, no, Barbie is only 19. Well, that is the age she was when she first appeared. My Barbie doll is really real. But that was back in 1959. Since then, she's come back again and again, including for the millennium when she made a guest appearance on Wall Street Week with Louis Ruckheiser for Christmas back in 2000. Barbie is staging another of her periodic comebacks. Mattel's Millennium Princess version is a hot seller this season at $40. And now Barbie is back bigger than ever in her own blockbuster movie as a thoroughly mature 83-year-old, something that even Barbie herself may not want to think too hard about. It's the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. You guys ever think about dying? Here's to eternal use. Coming up, we're told that generative AI will change all of our lives in ways we just can't imagine. We put together a special Wall Street Week roundtable of Larry Summers and Steve Ratner to give us an early read on the possible effects of this revolution on macroeconomics and on investors. There's a substantial chance that AI is gonna be much more of a threat to IQ than it is to EQ. It is the cognitive classes, as you call them, who are most at risk. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Artificial intelligence. We may not yet know exactly what it is, even though the technology isn't all that new. But everyone agrees it's going to be huge. We don't know yet all of the different applications that are going to come up. We're seeing that just within the past six months, it's a revolution. With Julie Sweet of Accenture saying just about all executives believe it will change their world. In fact, 97% of executives in a recent survey that we did have said they believe that Gen AI will transform their industry and their company. Leading those funding startups to shift their investments with PitchBook reporting VCs last quarter spent less on crypto and digital assets than at any time since 2020, while investing more in AI than crypto even at its peak. Hopes are high that AI will make our lives better. We'll also see AI coming more and more to the forefront, both to help folks stay productive and from a security perspective. But as with all powerful tools, there are also risks involved, with the head of Google's DeepMind calling for more work on guardrails. The number one thing that needs to be done right now is to put more investment into AI safety research and understanding uh, uh, what these systems can do and what guardrails that we therefore should have. And Elon Musk urging the government to step up to the challenge. I'm in favor of AI regulation because I think advanced AI is a risk to the public. But ChatGPT pioneer Sam Altman warns about the difficulties. Global regulation is hard. You know, you don't want to overdo it for sure. But I think global regulation can help make it safe. Leaving us all with some difficult questions about how to get the best of what artificial intelligence promises and yet manage the risks. To help us begin to explore some of the questions we have about AI, welcome now our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, and Steve Ratner, Chairman and CEO of Willet Advisors, which manages the personal and philanthropic assets of our founder and majority shareholder, Michael Bloomberg. So welcome to back to both of you. Steve, let me start with you because you wrote a piece in the New York Times that a lot of us thought was quite thoughtful about this. Uh, making the point in part, this is not a new thing. You go back to the 17th century, there are questions about looms. Give us your sense about AI, the opportunity it offers us, and some of the resistance to it. 
Look, as I wrote in the piece, I think that, that economic growth and prosperity and, and better living standards for everybody in the world, no matter who they are, where they are, depends on increasing productivity, efficiency at work. And in my mind, AI, it may be, it may be a quantum leap. Uh, uh, we don't know that yet. But it's part of a continuum going back to even the, uh, the, uh, you know, the 13th century I wrote about, also in that piece briefly, of, of improvements and, in productivity and getting those into the hands of the workers so that people can have a higher standard of living. And as part of that, you have what Schumpeter famously called creative destruction. You have some jobs that are lost and other jobs that are gained. We had 450,000 telephone operators in this country in the 1950s. You tell me the last time you talked to a telephone operator. We had close to 2 million people, I assume most of them women, classified as typists. That's not even a job category anymore in the BLS. This is all some th things that have happened. And, and, and alternatively, we've developed millions of jobs in technology industries and finance and other sectors that have actually been helped by the development of technology. So, so Steve, of course, is an investor. Larry, you are a macroeconomist. As a macroeconomist, is Steve on the right trail about restoring the growth of productivity, which has dropped off, as Steve pointed out in his piece, it really has dropped off significantly? Steve's right to be for technological progress and to recognize that overall, it's through change and evolution mediated through markets that life has gotten so much better. And it's all right, just one thing. In the 1960s, 96% of American, American men 25 to 54 were working, and only 4% were not. Today, it's more like 14%. Are there things we should be doing right now that we fail to do with automation and with globalization to think about those distributional uh, effects, potentially of AI, to make sure that we bring more people along with the progress? Absolutely. Look, I don't think actually Larry and I really disagree. I understand the problem he's talking about. It actually relates to automation a lot and, um, and also to trade. And where I think, frankly, the economist and Larry may jump down my throat for this, but where I think the economists got it wrong on trade, which is similar in a lot of respects to automation or other technological improvements in terms of its impact is that trade had huge macroeconomic benefits for the country. We missed the macroeconomic impacts. Those workers in Flint or Detroit or in Ohio, some of their jobs were, and I actually just read something the other day, you know, rough justice, maybe half their jobs were lost to automation. The other half were lost to trade. And we didn't, we had this little trade adjustment assistance program which basically did nothing. And we have not really done a great job as a society, both in getting the benefits of technology in into the hands of everybody. There's been this uh, lack of wage growth commensurate with the productivity growth over a fairly long period of time now, as well as individuals and finding them things to do where they can be more productive and happier. Larry, what about it? Uh, did The Economist, and yes, the policymaker in Washington, it sort of let us all down with respect to both automation and trade? We should have done more to cushion uh, the various changes associated with trade. I agree with that. I'm not sure I agree with Steve's quantification. And I think that a full calculus on trade has to recognize a large number of benefits in terms of jobs created and in terms of real wages enhanced. But that brings me to the other point I wanted to make about uh, AI. And I don't know for sure about this, but if my suspicion is right, it's very big. Most of the technological changes we've had before came for working people doing relatively routine things. 
They were uh, automatic ways of picking cotton that came from agricultural workers. They were things that replaced uh, typists or telephone operators, as uh, Steve mentioned. I have a suspicion that AI is coming for the cognitive class. And part of the reason you're seeing such hysteria now is that it's the people who write articles and their friends, the people like the three of us who are more at risk from AI competition than has been the case with most of the technological innovations uh, in uh, the past. I would say that there's a substantial chance that AI is going to be much more of a threat to IQ than it is to EQ. It will be a very long time before AI will replace many of the kinds of direct physical work. Think of working in a garden, uh, for example. So I have a suspicion that the distributional consequences of AI for the bosses versus the bossed may be very different than the distributional consequences of many of the other technological revolutions. And that affects how bosses are going to think about it in profound ways. They're going to be much more scared. And on the other side, it may be more benign from uh, the point of view of some of those who've been traditionally left behind. So, Larry, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, I think it is the cognitive classes, as you call them, who are most at risk. I might make it. I'm not sure I would think about it as bosses and boss. And I'll use, but I will use this historical analogy to give us a little bit of hope. When I started on Wall Street as a young investment banker, I had nothing. I had an early HP 12C calculator in my hand. We had no. Uh, we had no Excel. We had no computers to speak of. We had no nothing. All of our spreadsheets were done by hand. They took a really long time. They had to then be typed up, we'll put the typists aside, and then if I wanted to make a change, I had to start all over again. And now that can all be done with the click of a mouse, with an Excel program by anybody, with a, with a small uh, personal computer. And yet the number of people doing what I did 40 years ago when I started on Wall Street has multiplied since then. And so it became a productivity enhancing tool, not a job destructing, destructive tool. I'm perfectly prepared to believe that this may come out a different way. All I'm saying is I don't think we know yet and I think history is probably still on the side that we will find our way through this in a positive way. Many thanks to Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. Coming up, has the strong dollar run its course? We'll go through where we are and how we got here. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The U.S. dollar had been on something of a tear recently, hitting its peak last September, driven by all those rate hikes and expectations of more to come. But since then, it's given up over 5%, with prospects that the Fed may be nearing the end of turning up the heat. And J.P. Morgan warned this week it may get worse from here. But it's still nothing compared to what Louis Rukeyser was looking at on Wall Street Week back in 1993. 
The American dollar repeatedly dived to new post-war lows against the Japanese yen, fast approaching the once unthinkable level of 100 yen to the dollar. And one Japanese financier confided to me that the next logical step would be to revalue, knocking off the last two zeros, so that one yen would equal, and perhaps even exceed, one dollar. Never mind that many economists seriously question the wisdom of a succession of our own governments whooping the yen higher and the dollar lower, while beating on the Japanese to open their markets wider. To take us through where we are today with the dollar and where we may be going, we welcome back Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee. Unfortunately for Mr. Rukeyser, the dollar continued its dive in 1995, reaching the once unthinkable level of 80 yen. That was back in the days when American consumers seemed to be buying everything Japan could manufacture. The slide wasn't arrested until Robert Rubin, who became Treasury Secretary just as the dollar reached its nadir, was able to hammer home a new mantra that a strong dollar was in the best interests of the United States. And since then, as you've often heard, markets go up and markets go down. By 1998, the yen had weakened so much, the U.S. was willing to join with other G7 nations to strengthen it. Why? Well, for one thing, the euphemisms strong and weak are quite misleading. There are advantages and disadvantages to both conditions. If the dollar appreciates, it means foreign goods are cheaper to buy. That helps hold down inflation, which means interest rates can stay lower than otherwise necessary. But it also means American exports cost more overseas. If the dollar is depreciating, those exports are cheaper, and U.S. companies can sell more. More foreign tourists can afford to visit, and American assets become more attractive to foreign buyers. Now, some politicians worry about what they call a weak dollar, and it has been depreciating. The dollar rose because the U.S. economy has been much stronger than others, and the Fed's raised U.S. interest rates higher than other central banks. With the Fed almost done, that's changing against many currencies. Currency strategists forecast some dollar weakening, but no crash. It's still historically strong. A drop may disrupt some carry trades and other strategies, but it's not necessarily a bad thing for the U.S. Just sounds bad. David? Thanks to Bloomberg's Michael McKee. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.